Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is an ABC podcast. It is with great sadness that we must today announce the passing of a dear friend of the pod. AFLX, who was aged just two years. AFLX was born in 2018. X was known for various things: its rectangular shape, round robin format, and modified rules. It was also known for the dazzling array of gimmicks designed to desperately try and generate interest, including acrobats, zuper duper goals, flashing goalposts. And rock, paper, scissors. X brought us many great memories, including Alex Rance on a skateboard, Jack Rewalt in an ovary jumper, and um, that's it. That's that's everything. X is survived by its father, Gillan McLaughlin, and its siblings, M and W. Memorial donations in memory of X can be made out to AFLW. Valley. Good plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Kate Sear. I am the caretaker coach for this week. <laughs> Emma Race is off for a rest, but she'll be back in the coach's seat next week. But I am joined by a more than capable group of ladies to help me talk through everything to do with footy this week. I'll let the team introduce themselves. Hello, it's Lucy Race. Oh, she's back. Uh, Nicole Hayes. And it's Rana Ray. Who's saying? <laughs> Race. Rana, Rana, what a delight to have you in the studio. Of Thank course, you. our listeners will know you as the Diversity and Inclusion Coordinator at Richmond. You're a friend of the pod as well. Welcome. We've been desperate to get you in oh, for ages. I finally just busted down the door and ran in. <laughs> is it because the lid's off and so everyone can get out no. of Richmond now? No, no. Lid is firmly on. Lid is firmly on. What happened is she formally changed her surname to Race and so then we just couldn't resist her. No. She was impersonating Emma at the front desk. True story. Emma does, every time she texts me, does start with, hello, Rana Race. Aww. So I feel like I'm in. You are in. You're totally in. I didn't even get that. I freaking worked hard and I didn't even get that. Not cool. Oh, well, we'll Nicole Race... We'll start it here today. So, Rana, one of the reasons we've been desperate to get you on, not just because we love you and because you're a member of the extended race family, but you've just returned from this amazing exchange study trip to the United States. You undertook something called the International Visitor Leadership Program into Diversity and Inclusion. 
It's a really major professional exchange program run by the US Department of State. And I know from following your Twitter feed that you were all over the country. You're in San oh, Francisco, yeah. you're in Washington, D.C., hanging with Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> yeah. You've been going and visiting the NFL and the Major League Soccer. Tell us a bit about this program and what the purpose of it was. Yeah, look, it was it was a huge three weeks for me. Uh, it was basically three weeks of meeting different organisations, different people and having conversations around inclusion. And for me, it was particularly particularly around inclusion in sport. Perfect timing because, of course, the World Cup, Women's World Cup was on and I was in America to watch them win. It was just an incredible, (laughs) incredible atmosphere. It was amazing how much support there was and everybody kept talking to me about, do you know Megan Rapinoe? (laughs) Yes, of course I do. Yeah, it was amazing. Fantastic. What was one thing that surprised you most from your trip that you learned during that process? I'm, I was surprised at how similar um, the conversations are around sport and inclusion and that we're actually all kind of doing the same work, having the same conversations. And actually, if I'm honest, sometimes we're doing it better, in my opinion. Right. Uh, I think we're doing nuance better and uh, we're starting to push the envelope, whereas I think there's still a lot that's very corporate happening in America. The other thing on a more personal level was how comfortable I felt in New York in a way that I don't think I've ever felt here. And to me, that was really surprising. And it just came down to the amount of diversity. And I just kind of became one of the masses over there. And that was kind of a weird experience to feel so comfortable and then a little bit sad thinking, oh, okay, this is what it feels like. Sorry to be a bit of a bummer, but no, 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 it's a really important Important to hear. So there were other places where I stuck out like a sore thumb, mm-hmm. Montana, Akron. But in New York, there's just so many migrant populations there that it's not even a question really of where are you from. There's never double take. You don't walk into cafes or restaurants feeling like eyes are on you. Having said that, though, I guess my question would then be, are those people filtering up into positions of power? Mm-hmm. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about. Oh, we've got so much to talk about as well. You had another amazing experience just over the weekend. You met somebody very famous on Friday night. I did. I know if I'm on a good wicket at the moment. <laughs> you are. I had the pleasure of watching the footy in a box with Dr. Brené Brown, which... Oh, um, my, goodness. my goodness. So she was here, obviously, to do a few speaking spots, but she also was contacted by the Richmond Footy Club. Um, she came to the rooms before the game and actually went into the rooms. I didn't realise that, but she was she sort of went in and watched the team meeting before the game and then was up in a box with us. Her reaction to the game was incredible. She just kind of watched between, <laughs> covered her eyes and kind of was watching between her fingers because she just couldn't believe how brutal and yeah. fierce this game is. But then she got it so quickly. I mean, she had Alex Rance and Trent Cochin explaining it to her. <laughs> and I was sort of keen just to hear... <laughs> Just to hear what they were saying about the game too. That was really interesting in itself. She's super down to earth. Yeah, right. Gives some really good hugs. I plan to be so interesting and intelligent and (laughs) articulate and I was none of those things. But I just said, can I hug you? (laughs) I carried a watermelon. Yes, exactly. (laughs) 
It's so funny, isn't it, when you meet somebody who you've watched from afar. And for people who don't know who Dr. Brene Brown is, she's famous for originally for a TEDx talk that was around vulnerability and how important it is to embrace your vulnerability in terms of making solid relationships and how that can help you in so many aspects of life. Is her work something that's talked about in Richmond? Absolutely. Mm. Probably 2017 was where it really took off. The team has really embraced authenticity, being yourself, leaning into that vulnerable space as a way to kind of build team and a great culture and it's and it's lasted. So there was a lot of fangirling and not from me. I have well, to so say Trent that. and Alex, are they a little oh, impressed? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Just <laughs> A lot more than a little. <laughs> it was very cool to see, actually, and it, and I had a bit of a moment thinking, here's this woman who is influencing elite football here by talking about vulnerability. Like I just kind of went, wow. A few years ago, that just would no. not have happened. A couple of other things I just wanted to run by you really quickly, Rana. Last week on the pod, I don't know if you heard our important, we had a really important discussion on the podcast last week, and that is uh, about whether you have a preferred burner on the stovetop, whether it's front left, front right, back left or back right. Can you, yeah. do you have a preferred burner? That I you... voted in the poll, yeah. by the way. Thank you. Because I take this issue really seriously. <laughs> uh, I said front right. Okay, oh! you're with Nicole and I. Yes. Welcome to the sisterhood. Yeah. Lucy's on the, yeah, on the other. I feel excluded, but back right. <laughs> well, Rani, you can come back every week. This is Lucy's mm. last week. You're on one the of our people. <laughs> Lucy's finishing up today. so um, I, I love be. that Lucy actually was out with a knee and we're not lying. Like that's no, the first no, time no, one of our injuries has been legitimately like a sporting type injury. Can we table it, Lucy? Because you have been away for a couple of weeks. You did have some work on your ACL. <laughs> no, well, what I actually <laughs> had quite, was I had quite. an arthroscope and it was just to clean up some cartilage behind my kneecap. It's been interesting. It's firstly, I think, incredible what they can do and how quickly they can do it. So I was home in time to watch the first democratic debate. So that was great. But what I really have noted is the impact on my state of mind. It made me think about all of those footballers who I watch doing rehab or saying, yeah, and I'm, I'm okay. I was pretty disappointed that there was no media throng outside the hospital no. when I came yeah. out. So we, we actually barricaded them up. They're just a block or so yeah, away. Yeah, I, I missed <laughs> that. I was worried yeah. about you. But in all seriousness, I know how important it is for my own mental health to be able to exercise and mm -hmm. just to not be able to do that. I've already felt that impact this week. That's a really interesting observation, but that FOMO that people are out there doing what they do. And it's just one of those things that for elite athletes, it's your livelihood. It's often your, a lot of your identity is tied up in what you do. To then have your ability to, to do it taken away from you is really tough. And solidarity, my friends. Mm. But I'm back on the podcasting part. That's all the, good. That's the most important thing. Although this, as I said, is your final week. So <laughs> yeah, that's disappointing. <laughs> Yeah. There was some footy over the weekend, though. Yeah. Anything particular catcher? I mean, gee, Brisbane's Brisbane's going well, right? It's exciting, isn't it, to really see this team? I'm really impressed with how they're coming together in that really solid kind of unified approach. Like, I feel like they're a completely different team to three years ago. Yes. And how, you know, they've just turned that around so incredibly. And now, I mean, there is no question, they are absolute contenders. I'm 
might be rethinking. I'm thinking they'll they'll finish in the top four and I reckon they might just mm. miss out on the grand final. Mm. That's where I am with them. I thought Richmond was really impressive and, you know, it was a messy kind of first quarter and to see how well they played in the wet at the MCG. I think mm. it's a really long time since I've seen water fly up when they've, you know, slid <laughs> yeah. in for a contest. I think they're going to be really hard to stop. I'm sorry, Tess. And Rana. Are you superstitious too, Rana? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid question. I Just a big shout out to Mason Cox, though, who um, has actually done an eye. So he got poked in the eye and has a detached retina and will miss the that's rest of the season. And that's a shocking injury. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I know. I know. And he does have a sense of humour about it. He did He did put out a tweet <laughs> yeah, saying you know, something like, this is taking being a one-eyed supporter to yeah. one-eyed Collingwood supporter to the next level. But, yeah, solidarity with him because yeah. that is a really terrible injury and hopefully he bounces back mm. from it soon. So best of luck to him. I'm Melissa Hickey and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. All right, chicks. It's that time of the week. Roll up our sleeves and melee. There's heaps of stuff to, to get our teeth into this week. But Lucy, you wanted to talk a little bit about mental health and, and well-being. I did. Ava. I'd read an interview earlier this year with Wayne Schwoss and there was something that he said in that that was really interesting. He said, for every AFL player we know of with mental health conditions, we can assume a significantly higher number who are living with similar things but who don't speak of them to anyone. We need to change that culture and environment. And I think it's fair to say that that culture is changing. There have been two key appointments at the AFL this week. One of them is Dr. Kate Hall, and she's going to be leading the mental health and wellbeing team at the AFL. She's an experienced clinician and academic who's currently at Deakin and has over 15 years experience in research and practice. She's going to be joined by Dr. Ramjit Menon, who will become the AFL chief psychiatrist. So he's an experienced sports psychiatrist and has been working with a number of sporting organisations and clubs around the country, including some AFL clubs already. Both of these people have been working with the AFLPA and Paul Marsh was talking about the appointments this week and said through the combination of Dr Hall, Dr Menon and the existing AFLPA mental health and wellbeing team, we have never felt more optimistic about the industry's prospects of effecting meaningful change in what is our industry's most pressing issue. It's an extraordinary thing to see this change in the organisation at the AFL. We've seen a number of high-profile stories around the mental health of players this year, including people like Magic Daw, Lin Jong, who's taken some time out of the game, and retirements by people like Tom Boyd. Josh Green's talked about the impact of social media on his mental health. That's just scratching the surface. It was interesting. I don't think we've talked about it, but Dustin Martin, there was an interview with him earlier this year where he talked about his experience of anxiety and depression in 2018. And there's a new documentary about Collingwood in which Adam Trelaw reveals his ongoing struggles with anxiety. And what's interesting about both of those players is that both of them were experiencing really um, debilitating anxiety at a time when they were really flying high in their careers and things were going really well for them. I think that's a really interesting and necessary conversation that we need to be having that it's sometimes, you know, there are other things that we blame for poor mental health. And I think it's really important to have conversations where we talk about the fact that it can happen at any time. It's really good to see that both Dr. Hall and Dr. Menon will have responsibilities across the industry. So not just players, um, but coaches, umpires. And I would hope 
that would extend to broadcast in some way. What I'm hoping to see is that there might be some notable changes in the way that the AFL looks at social media platforms and those of their broadcast partners because we've heard so many people talk about the effect of social media. We see it constantly. I was shocked and dismayed to see um, the 7 AFL Facebook page talked about Daisy Pierce being back on the broadcast team and the comments underneath that were just so negative and it really concerns me that people are being hung out in a way that can have really negative impacts on them. So I welcome this um, change and look forward to what impacts we're going to see. We've seen a shift at the clubs too. So at last year, end of last year, last count, only three clubs didn't have a psychologist or psychiatrist on staff. So a lot of them have consultations or consultants attached, but there are three that still don't have anyone actually on staff. Of those others, though, they're not all full-time and there has been a really big push by the AFLPA to redress that. One of the limitations was the fact that it was part of this football salary cap and they wanted that shifted. It, it marginalised the welfare psychology and sort of prioritised the elite performance psychology mm. over welfare. The other thing that was really interesting when I was having a look at this, the AFLPA have 120 psychologists available to players and, and members. Last year, there were 1,678 consultations and that, that was mostly players. It shows you just how enormous the demand is. We need to be able to deal with it at every aspect of the game, including at club level, uh, where hopefully there's a more intimate relationship with the players and, and a better ability to kind of recognise mm -hmm. when perhaps some of the players aren't necessarily in the best place to identify for themselves that they need support. Yeah. I'm wondering, Rana, on this recent study trip that you mm. made to the US, whether the question of player uh, mental health and wellbeing came up. I think what did come up was the effect of marginalising players, um, particularly those, I mean, it, it came up in terms of race, but there's so many ways we can marginalise people. So for whatever reason, when people are feeling on the outer, then yeah, mental health can start to plummet. And so I'd be interested to know if um, these professionals will look at it in that way as well and what the kind of uptake of services are from Indigenous players, multicultural players. And actually, it's good to know that there is going to be some research done through these um, appointments. But I think the other part of football is that there's just something really relentless about the season. While mm -hmm. it's great and we do all love it, there's no stopping it. It's ongoing and through winter as well, which has a real impact, particularly on staff as well. You see it. it we all talk about it, you know, the mid-year slump, um, mid-season slump. There is something going mm -hmm. on with that. And yeah, I'm really glad to hear that this appointment's mm -hmm. been made. One of the other things that's relentless but of a very different kind is media focus on attention on and speculation about what's going on in the footy world, who's going where, whether they're going to be trades, whether coaches are going to move around and so on. And Nicole, you've been keeping your eye on some of this stuff. This is more in theoretical. I'm not going to give you any of the actual specifics because frankly, it's absurd. And Sometimes it feels like the sports media is making noise just because it has to. And I just don't feel like every single silence has to be filled with something when you've got actually nothing to say. And especially when it means you're making stuff up. I mean, I'm a you know novelist and a fiction writer and I'm a big fan of making stuff up. But inappropriate. You know, I the appropriate feel like it's context, appropriate in sports right? reporting. <laughs> but if you read some of the articles that have been written the last, I mean, the last few days, but it happens over and over whenever there's a bit of a lull in news stories. 
It genuinely feels like they're being ripped from the pages of a spy thriller. I'm not going to name the clubs and players, but I reckon our listeners will be able to recognise them from what they've been hearing. In the last day or two, I've read how one player could end up at a new club via a complicated network of plot reversals and turning points that involve a deep betrayal by some beloved hometown heroes who might or might not be Luke Bruce and Jack Gunston. Another article was like a prototypical quest story outlining all the elements of the hero's journey in a wish list of every conceivable quality player who might or might not be out of contract. Do you know who that one was? Mm. This is not based on any statement of fact or even a rumour. It was just a complete fiction from top to bottom. (laughs) Another piece that spawned a bunch of responses, which I'm going to... see as fan fiction, really, outlined a deep conspiracy between a beloved hero, a distant traditional rival, and a double shot latte. (laughs) And that's just player movements. We've had coaching conspiracies of Joseph Campbell proportions involving protagonists who have flat out rejected the call, being cast in all manner of stories and new plot lines, and current former players telling their current former clubs how to manage their current actual players and how the current actual players should make life decisions based on unsubstantiated, possibly fictitious secret theories about choices they might be asked to make. Please stop making things up. head spinning. (laughs) Just because the story is in your head doesn't mean you should say it out loud. Inside voice. (laughs) Or better yet, put those excellent imaginations to good use and please help me solve the knotty plot problem I have in the second act of my new novel. (laughs) Because you guys are clearly better at fiction than I am. Help a lady out. Rana, you must deal with rumours and speculation about players leaving or coaches leaving and inside the club. Does this filter down into and at the water cooler are people kind of worrying that someone's going to leave or you're going to get a new coach or assistant coach? You become pretty good at taking it all for with a grain of salt, but sometimes this stuff kind of snowballs yes. and then kind of gets into people's heads. So you, you do never know when it's going to take. And because I'm not really in the footy department, so I don't always hear everything. So I often kind of drop it into conversations <laughs> just to see if I'm if they're on the right track. Do or they not. blink? Oh, the rebel in me just wants to start kind of <laughs> putting stuff out there and see how far it'll go. <laughs> Maybe we could start a new board game like Cluedo. Yeah. <laughs> Alistair Clarkson in Sydney with <laughs> the candelabra. A giant. I know. I know, right? I'm Chelsea Roffey. You're listening to The Outer Sanctum. One of the other things that happened this week is that we were contacted by a listener who reported an exchange to us from the Melbourne Cricket Club's AGM that unfolded last week. And our understanding from this listener was that there was no welcome or acknowledgement of country delivered at the start of the AGM. And then one of the MCC members asked the president of the MCC why that was the case. And the listener tells us that the president responded by saying that acknowledgements and welcomes of country happen at big events at the MCG and that something to the effect of it's on our future agenda to have acknowledgements or welcome to country at all events, but that our demographic are slow to change on these matters. And I was just so disappointed Hmm. uh, to hear about that exchange. I couldn't help but think... I think there was some irony, to put it lightly, in in this um, notion because no one asked for permission to claim Australia from its Indigenous inhabitants. And so the idea that we now need to wait for permission or support to acknowledge the simple fact that that happened was, quite frankly, ludicrous to me. 
It's my understanding that the MCC has now had at least a couple of members request an explanation from them in the aftermath, which I think is a good sign that that it was noted. I contacted the MCC and I asked them a few questions and we received a response from an MCC spokesperson and I'm just going to read it. So they say the Melbourne Cricket Club, through the historical importance of the MCG, has a unique and important opportunity to facilitate respect and promote unity between first and new peoples. The MCC performs acknowledgements and welcomes to country at major public events and club functions and will look to extend this to future annual general meetings. We are currently in the process of implementing a reconciliation action plan which aims to build on existing relationships with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The MCC is committed to bringing meaningful reconciliation initiatives to the forefront and looks forward to sharing this journey with its community. So some positive developments, I think, there. So that's a story we'll definitely uh, follow. But the idea of having to wait and take time to do these things really reminded me of a story from a few weeks ago that we spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast, and that is um, in the aftermath of the public screening of the first Adam Goods documentary, Shelley Ware's tweet, uh, where she shared that she had been told as an Aboriginal woman that Australia just wasn't ready yet to see Aboriginal faces on TV and that she had to be patient. And it reminded me of a really powerful moment from the late and truly, and I mean truly great, James Baldwin, where he said this. What is it you wanted me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It has taken my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? And I just... Couldn't agree with that more. How much? How long do we have to wait for, for progress? How much time is long enough? So I just wanted to say to our listeners, who I know we're often preaching to the choir with, with them on these issues, but wherever you can, whether it's your local footy club, your workplace, an organisation that you have links to, ask them, if you can, what's being done. Don't take that we'll wait for it or we'll get there mm-hmm. as an answer, I think. If you can and you have the capacity and ability to do so, continue to ask questions like our listener did to the MCC last week and in so doing set off what was an important conversation uh, and we need to have more of them. You're having one of these such conversations within the Richmond Footy Club at the moment, Rana, or you, you've long been having them, mm-hmm. but you are working on your own plan, which is a diversity and inclusion action plan. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yes, I'm very excited, Terry. I'm such a nerd when it comes to this stuff. (laughs) Off the back of our Reconciliation Action Plan, which we've had for quite a number of years and recently just renewed, this year we've worked on a Diversity and Inclusion Action Plan, um, which isn't as formal a process as a wrap, but we just figured we've been having these conversations around inclusion in the club and it just became so obvious we can work on external facing programs and that's really important. But actually, if we don't work on ourselves internally, not a lot is going to change. So we sort of decided we want to come up with a set of actions that are going to change the way we work at the club. So for the next three years, we're going to look at primarily educating ourselves. So really learning about inclusion, what that means, what different marginalised communities go through, how they experience our club and going to the football and where we can tweak what we're doing. So, And I think that's the biggest thing when it comes to footy. We all talk about wanting to diversify and be inclusive. And I think that actually the biggest piece of work is looking at ourselves mm-hmm. and actually um, letting mar- marginalised communities off off the hook a little bit to explain who they are and what they need. We actually have to go to them and do the work. We have some like some practical 
things that you're going to be doing in the club that you could maybe share with us? Yeah, so one of the um, things that I really liked um, is having kind of a DNI events checklist. So every time, you know, we've got an MC or holding an event, is it accessible? What's the bathroom situation like? Who are we getting as our MC? Could we look at different you know, community groups to do that? How are we communicating what it is we're doing? Do we need closed captions? So basically get to the point where we're having these conversations without having to kind of formally sit down and do a checklist. But a checklist is the start of that. The other one which I'm really excited about is making sure all our new positions get advertised to different community groups. So making sure they're going out to people that we wouldn't normally capture. Because at the moment we are really not representative of the Australian population and the only way we're going to do that is reach out to different communities. You heard us mention earlier, Rana, the first of the two Adam Goods documentaries that um, has had a really big impact on these kinds of conversations as far as we can tell. And that conversation about diversity, inclusion, marginalisation and so on has continued in the last week and is going to continue over the next few after the premiere of The Australian Dream the second Adam Goods documentary, and you mm. were at that premiere. I was. Can you tell us a little bit about what the feeling was like and how you yeah. experienced it watching that film? Oh, the feeling of the room was amazing and I've never seen film celebrities and footy celebrities in the one room. <laughs> Together <laughs> at last. really weird. <laughs> the film was incredible. It was really interesting for me and similar to after watching the final quarter, hearing Indigenous people's response to it because it was kind of the people that I spoke to and amongst them was Shelley Ware as well. It was, yep, this is something we know and it's hard to watch again, recognising that this is actually not a film necessarily for Indigenous people. It's great to hear, to have Indigenous stories represented, but for a lot of the people I spoke to that night, it was just a kind of, there was a sadness. There was also kind of a, well, what next? I thought that was really interesting. And I had a similar question in in that, what do I need to do next? All I could really think of was, I just need to tell everybody to watch this yeah. movie. Mm. It's re- it is really good to hear Adam's voice after watching the final quarter. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. And to, to see that Adam's journey and and what he's doing didn't end when he left the football field and that he's actually doing really well and wanted to be part of this film because he felt that there was some wisdom that he could impart and there was some parts of the story that he wanted to talk about. I really put a lot of store in the idea that our cultural products can change hearts and minds in a really profound way. And in the, we've just woken up to the news that Toni Morrison passed away and she, her book in particular, Beloved, but all of them literally overnight changed my understanding of race and my acknowledgement of the privileged position I hold in a country like Australia. And I really believe these documentaries have the potential to do the same thing for Australia. A story well told stays forever. It is a really important film, one that we hope all of our listeners will go and watch. We also hope they will tell everybody they know to go out and watch it as well. And we wanted to continue to have a conversation about it. And so to do that, we're bringing in two people who are very pivotal to the film. Racism has no place in society. It has no place in our industry. Football's racism row has erupted again. I'll continue to stand up. This is unacceptable because he's black. It's their voice. We are racist. It's shocking. 
the backlash intensified. Strangled. He knew why it was happening. We need to talk about this. You get what you wish for. Suddenly, it wasn't just Adam Goods the footballer, he was Adam Goods the angry Aboriginal. We're delighted to be joined here today by Stan Grant, who is a writer, a multi-award winning journalist and current affairs host, and the Global Affairs and Indigenous Affairs Analyst for the ABC. He features in and wrote The Australian Dream. And Nova Paris, who's an Olympic gold medalist as part of the 1996 Hockey Roos Olympic win in Atlanta, the first Aboriginal Australian to win Olympic gold. And then she swapped over to track and won gold at the Commonwealth Games in the 200 metres and the 4 by 100 metre relay. In 2013, Nova became the first Aboriginal woman in federal parliament. Uh, welcome, Nova. Welcome, Stan. Thank you. Thank you. No, Nova hasn't done much in her life, has she? She's <laughs> led, a, led a quiet life, unassuming, you know. Um, underachiever. <laughs> underachiever. That's incredible, isn't it? What an amazing list of feats. Incredible. Absolutely. We're really delighted to have you both here. Um, Stan, there are so many conversations about race that Australia needs to have. We're really interested why you chose footy and why the Adam Good story. I didn't really choose it, to be honest. It sort of presented itself to me. Um, you know, I'd been out of Australia for quite a while, 17 or 18 years, and I came back to Australia after living in London and Middle East and Beijing and Hong Kong and, and working for CNN. And I came back to Australia right at the peak of the booing of Adam Goods. And I suppose it really became something that was very personal to me when I saw what Adam was going through um, when I heard those boos. And I think this is true of most Indigenous people, certainly anyone I've spoken to, that we felt that this was about us. This reminded us of our history and where we'd come from. And the boos, as I said before, were a bit of a howl of humiliation for us and, and an echo of 200 years of injustice and, and segregation and exclusion. And so when I saw that, I, I felt compelled to, to write something and to say something. And then that led to the film. But it was something that needed to be said and uh, I certainly couldn't ignore and Nova, why did you choose to give your voice to this film? Um, so I was asked to be a part of it and something that I didn't hesitate to say yes to. Um, you know, I've been a victim of racial abuse many times and in particular um, more so when I went into to Parliament. The racial attacks, racial abuse, threats came thick and fast. And that was because I was an Aboriginal woman going into parliament that was always true to myself. And I was always going to be outspoken. I was there when Adam won the Australian of the Year. I was there with my husband and my children and the immense pride that we had to see an Aboriginal man so staunch get up and talk about history and his mother's story. Now, he didn't have to do that. And what I saw unfold after he spoke about it, his history was white Australia was saying, well, we didn't give you that platform to talk about your history. We gave you the platform to talk about your sports. But I'm sorry, me being who I am, Stan being who he is, mm. Adam being who he is, it is not the right thing to do to take any sort of accolades without acknowledging those who have gone before us, the mm. shoulders of giants who we've stood on. I've stood on my mum's shoulders. My mum has stood on her mother's and father's shoulders. Now, Adam's story of his mother is my story of my mm. mother. That's why it was a groundswell of mob getting behind Adam and supporting him because it's not an easy thing to do. 
as we see, when you get out and you speak the truth, we've got to ask the question, is Australia prepared for the truth? And, you know, it's almost as if we have two conversations in Australia. It's almost as if we speak over each other. You know, there's the Australia that most Australians see and the, the, the world that they live in. And then there is the Australia that we see. And they are so very different. And I know that Australians, you know, like to talk about this idea of the fair go and the egalitarian society and that we shouldn't judge people by race and we shouldn't cling to our history. Well, we were judged by our race. We are judged by by race. History has shaped us. And for us, those things are front and centre all the time. And we have a responsibility uh, and a legacy that we have to uphold. You know, we'd all like to be out there living the lives that we want to live. But this is this is a burden that we carry and it's a responsibility that we have. And it's a pride, frankly, that we have in who we are and how we've survived. Of course, we're going to, to speak about these things. Stan, I saw that you've talked about the Australian dream as being a film about Terra Nullius mm. and that Terra Nullius is what stops white Australia from really seeing black Australia. Can you explain what you mean yeah. by that? Because I think that's what you're touching on here. Yeah, yeah look, it is. And Terra Nullius frames all of our lives. It stops Australians truly seeing us. It has led to our exclusion as Indigenous people. And it's rooted in this idea that when the British claimed this continent, we were effectively invisible. Terra nullius is a, is a Latin term, a legal doctrine that means empty land, empty land. That when the British came, when Captain Cook arrived, he could plant a flag in this soil and claim the entire continent for the crown. Irrespective of the fact that people had been here, we now know, for at least 60,000 years and upwards of that, and that Indigenous people, first peoples of this land, had an intricate and sophisticated civilization and culture and politics and trade and art and law and song and ceremony. And, and these things were deeply embedded in this place, in this land. It was far from an empty land. But when you claim a continent on the idea that the people who were here did not exist and had no legal rights, it means that we stop being visible to white Australians. Everything that happens after the arrival of the British becomes a British story. You know, look at the names that we give to our capital cities. They're British names. They're names of British royalty or British politicians. Our flag with the, the Union Jack in the corner. Our anthem that talks about being young and free and ignoring the 60,000 plus years of history that came before that. And this film lands right at the core of that question of when someone calls an Aboriginal person an ape, what is that telling you? That's telling you that you're subhuman, that you don't exist as a human being, that your rights don't exist. You know, when Nicky Winmar was stood there and pointed to the colour of his skin, he was making a statement saying, I am here, this is who I am, see me. That's what this film's about. This is about us saying, we are here, we matter, our history matters, and Terra Nullius is a lie. Stan, given all that, I 
came into watching this movie expecting only Indigenous voices, yet there are many voices in this film. How did you decide who you wanted to hear from? Well, it was a collaborative process. You know, the producers of the film and the director, Dan Gordon, was very intricately involved in this. We wanted to do two things. The, the film is, is a juxtaposition of Adam's story, the deeper story of Aboriginal Australia, and a, a speech that I'd given around the Australian dream. And that's why the, the, the film has the title the, to the, the, the Australian dream. So it was marrying all of these ideas. So we wanted to hear black voices and I wanted to hear Aboriginal voices that were centred. It wasn't Aboriginal people talking back to white Australia. It was Aboriginal people speaking from black Australia, saying, this is our story. This is what happened to us. And that was vitally important. But we also needed to have voices of the people who spoke at that time, the, the supporters of Adam, his coaches, fellow players who, who stood with him, but also those who, who uh, took a different view, those who said that this wasn't racism and those who questioned the stolen generations. And, you know, that is part of the Australian narrative. And we needed to reflect all of those voices, capture the voices of the time, but also cast this in a bigger light, that there was 200 years of history that came before the booing of Adam Goods, and that's what framed that story. Nova, I saw you talk about the fact that Nathan Buckley is part of this film and that you grew up with him. Is that right? Yes, from Darwin. So um, I knew Nathan from when he was about eight, nine years old. I saw Nathan play footy as a minority. You know, there's a lot of Aboriginal, more Aboriginal people playing football in his team than there were non-Indigenous people. So I've always seen Nathan as a strong supporter and, and almost like an ally for Aboriginal people and the cause. And, and his mum, Annie Karen Buckley, has almost always ever worked in the field of Aboriginal affairs. The Buckley family um, is very well respected. And it was beautiful to see Nathan, you know, someone who has achieved so much in his lifetime as football, but also his status now as a coach for him to give his voice and it was an honest reflection of who Nathan Buckley is as a person and he sat in front of myself and my family whilst we watched it Paul Rue sat in front of us and he was he cried his eyes out almost mm. the entire movie and he he saw me after it and he just said that was the first time he'd seen the movie and even still it's not until you actually sit there and watch it project in front of you and how it all unfolds, you actually realise the pain, the world that we come from and all we're asking is like what Stana said, acknowledge our world, value us, value mm. our history, respect our history. And, and I said it on the night of the premiere, you know, when you value and respect us, white Australia, you don't lose your 233 years, you gain 50,000 years. And, you know, when Stan's talking about the whole terra nullius notion, that, that, that wasn't a half a century ago. That was handed down in 1993. That, that's a, kind of a couple of decades ago. Only a couple of decades ago that Australia has to come to grips with yeah. one of the biggest lies of this country. I'm really interested in what success looks like to you, that this film is already making waves and there's already, it feels like a shift in the conversation. Stan, what are the benchmarks for you in terms of the impact of this film? It's been a bit bewildering for me and, and it's always very um, humbling to be involved in anything that, that has a deep impact because this is about truth. This is about just speaking 
our truth um, and putting that on the screen. But that's a very vulnerable position to be in. You know, we're very exposed when we do this. It was wasn't an easy process, and writing about this stuff and talking about this stuff, it's it's often very painful. You know, this is real for us. You know, the pain of our families, the suffering of our families. Too many people who die young. Too many people who are locked up in prisons. You know, I can see this written on my father's body, broken bones and and tattoos and scars, and he's carried this country on his body. Um, My mum used to write poems and and stories when I was a boy about her brothers and sisters taken away and what it was like to live on the fringes and the margins, you know, on the outskirts of town and always feeling like an outsider. And, you know, these things are very personal, but they can also be very cathartic. They allow us to, to move through that. And I think storytelling is at the heart of nation building. And when you share a story, you release yourself from the grip of that pain and you share that with others and you open a space for other people to enter and to have that conversation with you. For me, success with this film will be personally letting it go, um, letting the film go to find its audience and watching the conversations that emerge from that in the space that everyone who's involved in the film has helped to, to open up and to tell a new story about who we are. Neva, what would you like to see or what are you seeing in terms of the impact of this film? I, I guess um, when you watch it, you embrace it. Don't question the integrity of it or there's a motive behind it. You know what I mean? I always feel that for me in a perfect world, it's like when we say something is racist as an Aboriginal person, don't challenge that. And one of the most infuriating thing is when I see non-Indigenous people challenging us, our feelings when we say something is racist, who are those people to say it's not? Again, it goes back to being valued and respected. When, when, People say that I'm Aboriginal or my son or my daughters, whoever they, if they, someone asks them, you know, what nationality they are, they say they're Aboriginal. People question that. Yeah. You know, and, and for me in a perfect world, when we are asked and when we say that's racist, that person says, why is it racism? Or, you know what I mean? Our feelings, it's not like we're valued and respected. That That's how I see a lot of this. And I hope that this film, and I know that it's the idea that it gets seen by pretty much all, almost all Australians because it's it's history, it's truth, but it's a way forward. The catching thing is I'll stand with Adam. Mm. And, you know, it goes back to almost like Peter Norman, mm. what Peter Norman did those 51 years ago. He said to those two athletes, those mm. fellow athletes of his, I'll stand with you. And he stood for human equality. Non-Indigenous people, you can see what humanity is, and that's a Peter Norman, it's an Adam Goods. And that's what we're saying is when something needs to be called out, we will call it out, but stand with us. Don't challenge it. Can can I just echo what what Nova Mm. said there? This is the great... Again, this this is something that emerges from Terra Nullius, the idea that we're constantly being questioned. We have to explain ourselves or Mm. defend ourselves. I don't know how many times I've been told, oh, well, you're not really Aboriginal or you're not like the others, whatever that means, as if they're making a judgment about everyone else. Or what are you? How much Aboriginal are you? We're constantly having to defend or explain ourselves. And that's that's questioning our humanity. You know, we know who we are. We know who our families are. We know where we come from. And all Aboriginal people have done 
uh, in Australia is to try to fight for justice, is to try to be inclusive and generous and say to white Australia, you don't lose anything by embracing the depth of our connection to this place. That's a culture for everyone to share. But Nova is so right. It's that constant pressure to be always explaining yourself. And then when you do explain yourself, to be questioned about that and, and as if you're as if you're lying or as if you're making this up. Hmm. I'm really curious to know, Stan, what you think the place of newer migrant communities is in this conversation. And do you anticipate any impact for those communities? I think for everyone, regardless of how long you've been here, is to embrace and be aware of the depth of Aboriginal experience and connection to this land. There were a sovereign people here when the British arrived, a people who who had lived here for tens of thousands of years. We can't just dismiss that. That is at the heart of this land. And I think for anyone, any new migrant, anyone coming to this country, is to understand that to be an Australian, to have an allegiance to this country, means connecting first with the first people of this country. And we can't do that properly until we have fully recognised the place of First People, that you know, the first words of our constitution should be that we respect and acknowledge the place of the First People of this country and that through their sovereignty we build the Commonwealth. You know, that this is a place that we are the entry point for all Australians to connect to this country. And until we do that, I think we'll always have this, there'll be a hollowness, there'll be a a hollow feeling to our national celebrations, our national days, when we sing anthems, there'll always be that that sense that we're not the country that we should be. So really, for me, it's about telling a story of who we are and allowing people to enter into that story. And that that story is not a 200 plus year old story. It's a 60, 70, 80,000 year old story that connects us to who we are today. All of us, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. You've both been so active and prominent in this incredibly long and fraught journey of trying to lift um, non-Indigenous Australia's awareness of issues around race. I imagine it's exhausting. How do you keep going? I think I have this ancestor voice in my ear that just says keep going. A lot of people, you know, um, I guess acknowledge my sporting achievements. But for me, that's a small thing. With regard, I love sports. I was good at sports and I was prepared to do all the hard yards to get me to the the heights that I achieved. But, you know, like I I often reflect on my mother's story, you know, on the mission. She didn't have freedom. She wasn't, you know, she, she was trained as a domestic servant. My grandmother, whose clothing attire was nothing more than much of a hessian bag, there was so much denial about her knowing what love was from her mother and and father, knowing that she, her life mattered. You know, there were so many things that my mother and my grandparents were denied. And I'm like, no, that's shit. I'm not going to stand for that. You know, I want my kids to live freedom. I, I have a freedom, but I owe it to my mother and to my grandparents who weren't allowed that, who were denied that. So for me, being who I am... It's this little voice saying, you remember where you come from. You remember those who have gone before you. Remember the strength and the resilience and the struggle of when the Second World War came and, 
you know, all the kids in the Kimberley in the top end who were in missions were, had to go fend for themselves. There's a strength and the resilience that we need to tell children, don't be ashamed of your history because our history of one is one of strength and resilience. And I think that that was really resonated in Adam's story, you know, where those who have gone before us were told to be quiet. Now, this generation's not being quiet. Stan, Mm. what about for you? You know, I'm fully aware of my own sort of place in this and aware that, you know, I'm a very, um, I'm just one voice in all of this. And there are people, and Nova's one, and Adam, and Michael O'Loughlin in the film, and everyone who appears in the film, uh, Indigenous people who have marched and protested, and people who fought for this country, and people who worked on the railroads and, and drove the cattle and picked the fruit. We've been part of building this country. This is our country. You know, this is our country. And and we share this country with everyone else. So like Nova says, I'm 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 part of that continuum. I was raised on those stories, those stories at the heart of who I am. And no matter where I am in the world, no matter where I've lived, no matter what I've done, I've walked through the world with a deep knowledge of who I am and where I'm from. I'm an Australian and my the way that I see Australia is through the eyes of being a first Australian, a Wiradjuri and Gumroy person, and I embrace all parts of my heritage. And, you know, I think for me, it is just doing what you can to tell the stories of this country that connect people to a deeper understanding of who we are and how we can share this place. This is a remarkable country by, by any measure, but people have paid a price for the success of Australia. And there are things that we haven't done. And to be truly a great country, we can't allow those things to go undone. It's such an enormous and important conversation and one I feel we barely scratched the surface of. But thank you both, Nova Paris and Stan Grant, for helping us navigate this space. We would really encourage everybody to get out and see The Australian Dream, which is will be out on cinematic release from the 22nd of August, but please continue the conversation. Thank you, Stan. Thank, Thank you. you, Nova. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, ladies, it's that time of the week. We're going to move on to final business. What have you got for us, Lucy Race? Big shout out to Sally Pearson, who has retired after a stellar 16-year track career. She won silver and gold at the Olympics. She won world titles. She won gold at the Commonwealth Games. And we wish her all the best in her retirement. Nicole Race. <laughs> so that just rolled off the tongue. It did. It really fits beautifully. Uh, this Friday, I'm going to be launching Andrew Stafford's new music-inspired memoir, Something to Believe In, at Gravel Records in Melbourne. So for anyone local to come along on, on Friday at 7pm. Andrew's a massive supporter of the podcast, and he's also the Queensland Fairfax reporter for Brisbane and and Gold Coast. So he's got a lot of footy cred as well. But his main claim to fame is as the author of Pig City, a tribute to the Brisbane rock scene. And he's also just an extremely exceptional person. So come along (laughs) or at at the very least you can contact Gravel Records and and actually get a copy of his signed book. Yeah, fantastic. I wanted to um, just pick up on something we did last week because we did a shout out to one of our listeners, Kate Burke, and Emma suggested that we should make that a regular thing uh, where we acknowledge and thank one of our listeners for something. And so today I want to do that and thank Beck Taylor. She got in touch with us to tell us that if you look on Cricket Australia's website, 
website, you will see articles about the men's ashes. As Beck pointed out, and I'll quote here, small steps and changes can mean so much. And that's very true. So kudos to Cricket Australia. And on that note... Thanks also a big shout out to the ABC because on our Listen app, I noticed that we've been doing the same thing. So little changes are happening here and there and together they'll all add up to something very big one day. Uh, I also wanted to give a shout out, of course, to Rana's own podcast, Our Stripes. If you're not on board and not a subscriber to that, you should be, especially if you're a Tigers fan. This most recent episode, we interviewed two of our KGI leaders, so young Indigenous leaders who work with the club. So it's very appropriate for today's conversation. Can you remind our listeners what KGI yes. is? Yeah. Corin Gamaji Institute. It means grow and emerge. And it's our basically the work we do at the club with young Indigenous people. Fabulous work. I've got another shout out to another documentary, which is called Collingwood from the Inside Out, which will be premiering at the Melbourne International Film Festival on August 15, but it will be screened on the ABC at 9.30 on the 3rd of September. And I think that would be a great one to catch. The directors of that film were recently on the Fangirls podcast. So I don't know if you've listened to that, but that is a fantastic podcast. Mm. Their episode, Maybe It's More Than Just Black and White, is a great one to catch. Well, lots of reading and listening and homework for all of our listeners <laughs> to do. Well, I'll be fine because I've been sacked. <laughs> oh, that's yeah. true. oh, that's true. I thought you were going to say you were up on the, out on the couch with your knee. But, no, well, now but that that's too. it. So Let it's us... been nice. <laughs> Sorry, Lucy. Let us know if you have any other Netflix recommendations. <laughs> Lucy, ladies, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun and such a joy to have you in the studio, Rana. As I said, we've been wanting you to come back in for ages and uh, we'll have you any any week. You put your hand up and you're available. Please do come in because it's always great to talk to you about what's going on. Thank you for having me. And we'll talk to you maybe later in the year too when the Tigers win the flag. So... um, I'm just going to keep putting it out there into the universe and the footy gods will hear me and that's how it works, I believe. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Rana Hussain from the Richmond Football Club for joining us. Thanks, Lucy. We will have you back next week. I think you were great, actually. And thank you, Nicole Race, as always, (laughs) and our wonderful producer, Tess Armstrong. Thanks very much for everyone listening. One last little plug. Please give us a review on iTunes. Five stars only. And um, (laughs) there's only one thing left to say and that is... Go Go footy! Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.